the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Streaming now on smart speakers and the Odyssey app. AM 1100 KFAX. Portions of our programming may be pre-recorded. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. When Franklin D. Roosevelt died in April of 1945, few Americans knew how disabled the 32nd president was and the pains he took to conceal his physical disability, polio. During his political career, Roosevelt denied his disability in order to not compromise public perception of him as a vulnerable candidate, and he continued to hide his condition throughout his presidency. Sitting mostly at his desk or at a lectern, Roosevelt was never seen by the public in a wheelchair that he used daily for some two decades. Of the more than 35,000 photos taken of him during his 12-year-long presidency, only two show the president in his wheelchair, both taken by family members and never made public until well after his passing. FDR's biographer Hugh Gallagher called it FDR's splendid deception, referring to the illusion used by FDR to hide his disability. Today, we're living in a very different age. During FDR's era, it wasn't the trend to unmask what was considered to be vulnerabilities. Today, the phenomena of the disability is viewed differently as it's used as a means of encouragement for people with disabilities and the non-disabled. Stories of perseverance and confidence flourish, and it's considered healthy to divulge and discuss one's disabilities. In this respect, people with disabilities and others can learn and improve from the disability experience, and hopefully in the end, we all can grow. Joining me now with more, we're pleased to have in studio a person who certainly is very familiar to the KFAX audience. In fact, you hear her in a brand new broadcast weekday mornings at 1120 here on KFAX. She's Johnny Erickson Tata. And Johnny, great to see you and great to have you back in studio with oh, us. Oh, Craig, it's been way too long since I've been up here at KFAX. And uh, thanks for having me back. And you know, it's interesting. You were talking about um, FDR a moment ago and uh, his disability. You know, if you visit his uh, monument in Washington, D.C., the, the, the wheelchair is only slightly alluded to. Uh, the statue, the sculpture was fashioned in such a way that uh, so as to, quote, respect uh, FDR's perception of his own handicapping condition. But as you just said, it's a different world we live in now. It's amazing how much times and perceptions have, have really changed, haven't they? They really have. And it's interesting that those perceptions actually were given birth here in the Bay Area. Uh, back in the 1960s, the independent living movement, um, what is called the independent living movement, was uh, kick-started over at UC Berkeley when people with disabilities began to see that, uh, hey, we're not patients. We're not people who need to be fixed or, quote, taken care of. Uh, we're individuals who have talents, gifts, abilities, job skills. So the independent living movement right here in Berkeley is where that whole change and shift of perceptions began. It's fascinating how we tend to focus on the different. And, and, and this, I think, flows in so many aspects of life, all a big part of, I think, a man's fallen sin nature, his, his fallen condition, that if there's something that's different about somebody else, somehow we point that out and oftentimes, unfortunately, translate that as a negative. But in fact, if you look, for example, at the life of FDR, how that in spite of 
what seemed to be almost insurmountable odds in overcoming, uh, overcoming the challenges presented by polio. Man went on to, to lead us through two arguably of the most difficult crises in American history, uh, brought us through successfully uh, the largest war in recorded history. And so maybe part of the lesson that we can learn here is to understand that as we're so often inclined to point out the negative in others or what we perceive to be as being different from us can actually ultimately be very positive lessons that we can all grow and learn from. Oh, absolutely, Craig. In fact, back in uh, President Roosevelt's day, if you had a disability, you were viewed as, quote, abnormal in a normal world. But today, we look at disability, I choose to look at it, through a, a, a biblical lens. In other words, I am quite normal in an abnormal world. Uh, this world is fallen. This world is broken. Uh, we all have weaknesses. We all have um, limitations. So I'm very normal in a very abnormal world that one day uh, is going to be fixed when Jesus comes back and sets things right. But uh, I, And I think that's the, the common denominator between us all. That you know, That's why... Paul could say what in 1 Corinthians, um, if you've received comfort from God, that equips you to comfort uh, anyone in, quote, any trouble, any trouble. You don't have to be a quadriplegic to identify with my struggles. You've been through your own. And so there's a shared common denominator there. Amazing, too, how in the end the Lord becomes sort of the, uh, the great compensator for all of this. I mean, for example, in our fallen sin nature, uh, we are deserving of death, permanent separation from God because we've offended a holy and righteous God. Um, And yet God brought in the great compensator, Jesus Christ, his son who died on the cross to essentially compensate uh, for the punishment that we should have received, that through that sacrificial work that he did on the cross on behalf of all of us, we might be reconciled to him. I think of your own life and the ways in which uh, that uh, diving accident that you had X number of years ago. 45 years ago. <laughs> I wasn't going to mention any dates. Oh, my goodness. That <laughs> seems so older. long ago. <laughs> but the way the Lord has compensated so that what, in a sense, was taken from you, in so many ways, he's added to you. And I guess that's that's true no matter what our station in life would be. That the great the great compensator Jesus can can do all of that for Absolutely. us. Absolutely. And and that's what the great redeemer does. In fact, that's what redemption is all about about when uh, uh, God sent his son Jesus to be the redeemer for the world. That meant also not only were our souls to be redeemed, but uh, our suffering can be redeemed. Um, my wheelchair and of course back in President Roosevelt's day, uh, my wheelchair would have been viewed then as a symbol of confinement, a prison that I was entrapped in. In fact, um, you often hear people talk about individuals confined to wheelchairs. But with Jesus Christ, he redeems that. He changes that meaning. I'm not confined to this wheelchair. Oh, my goodness. It, it's it's the, quote, prison that has set me free. Um, it is the next best thing to having legs. It is, for me, a symbol of mobility and, uh, and, and, and freedom. And uh, Jesus did that with his own cross, didn't he? It, it, it at one time was a symbol of torture, a symbol of cruel punishment, uh, a symbol of execution. But now we wear crosses around our necks and they are symbols of hope and victory and, and peace and freedom. And so God does that when it concerns suffering or sin. He redeems things. He changes their meaning. He, he exchanges the bad for something so much more better than we would have ever dreamed imagined. And this is really true cross-sectionally for all of us, isn't it? I mean, whether we're talking about someone who's 
who's had a loss of traditional, quote-unquote, mobility through a swimming accident, to the woman listening right, listening right now who maybe recently lost her husband and now is, is feeling that tremendous loss, and yet God can come in as the great compensator, the great redeemer, and make up for all that, in a sense. He really does. And I, I know that um, when I talk to people, uh, it doesn't take long to, to find those um, common points of identification. I think I've told you before, Craig, I, I've shared with this listening audience, that for me, getting up in the morning as a quadriplegic, when my girlfriend comes into the bedroom and gives me a bed bath, does my toileting routines, senses up my corset, pulls up my pants, gets me dressed, sits me in my wheelchair, pushes me to the bathroom, brushes my hair, my teeth. I, the, 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 over, the, the routine itself is so overwhelming. There are many mornings I, I lie in bed dreading it, dreading waking up, dreading getting up because it's just such effort. And uh, not to mention just the, the pain and stiffness that goes with being in your 60s and and so often, uh, when I'm getting up, I'm thinking, oh, Lord Jesus, I, I do not have strength for this. I can't do quadriplegia, but I can do all things through you as you strengthen me. I, I, I don't have a smile for this day, but you do. Let me borrow your smile. I don't know how I'm going to make it, have to find the strength to make it to lunchtime, but, but you have ability. You have strength. And Craig, that way of waking up in the morning is a very biblical Christian way to wake up. And I think people identify with that. There's not a listener who's who's tuned into us right now who hasn't uh, woken up in the morning thinking, "I'll never have the strength to make it to through the day." And and so whether you're a quadriplegic in a wheelchair or whether you're crippled by anxiety or paralyzed by your your you know your your life circumstances, there is that wonderful um, thing that connects us: our desperate need of God. We all should be waking up in the morning needing God desperately. Are there two important lessons here, too? I'm, th- I'm thinking of the notion of the challenges that you face, that for most of it is, is routine. We go through, we don't think twice about it. And yet, where we have limitations to surrender what we cannot do to the Lord who can do all, and then coinciding along with that, the notion that what we can do to make it count? Oh, yes. Um, no one should suffer for nothing. Suffering should have meaning. And if it's going to count, it begins with their attitude. It begins with their perspective. It begins with trusting that God has permitted this, ordained it, allowed it, um, planned it, uh, whatever word you want to use there. Um, God has it, it has encroached your into your life with this inconvenience, with this set of circumstances, with this grief or this loss or this death or divorce or this disability. Um, he, he's, he's, he's put this in your life so that you in turn might be as First Corinthians, I think it is chapter 1, verse 9 says, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And when we quit relying on our own strength and go to God out of desperate need, help me, Jesus, I just can't do this without you. Oh, my goodness, we begin to experience his peace, his joy, his perseverance, long-suffering, his kindness, his gentleness, his compassion toward others who hurt. We become different people, and that's finding the good in the midst of affliction. Um, that's, that's understanding the depth of redemption that can come when you, when, you, when, you, when you become changed by it, when you become transformed and become more like Jesus. Suffering will do that to you with the right attitude and the right perspective. Johnny Erickson Tata today with us in studio. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Welcome back to The Conversation. Craig Roberts, along with our very special guest in studio with us today, a voice that you certainly recognize. She is Johnny Erickson Tata. The broadcast, by the way, Johnny and Friends, a new broadcast time here on KFAX. Heard weekday mornings about 1125, immediately following Daybreak with Pastor Don Shealy. So check that out, weekday mornings, Monday through Friday, right here on KFAX. You can get more information, too, on the web about Johnny and her ministry at johnnyandfriends.org. That's johnnyandfriends.org. Johnny, we were talking just before the break about this sense of of surrendering those things which we can't do, which we're incapable of doing, and allowing God's strength then to to compensate for all of that. And then that second component, that where we can do, make it count. I, I think we all know people that go through a day that have no limitations whatsoever, and they spend the 24 hours that God has given them every day accomplishing absolutely nothing. It just becomes wasted time. It's part of the message here, too, particularly for believers, to understand that in the limited time that we have on earth, even with the limitations that we might be handed through, whatever that is, uh, to make the time that we have really count. Oh, for sure, Craig. And and I know there might be friends listening who their disability is invisible. It might be depression. It might be um, just that heavy that heavy fog, that cloud of despair. And when you talk about making even days like that count, how do we live? How do we get through it? How do we take the next step? Well, I've got three words of advice. Number one, if you're, if you're discouraged, if you feel overwhelmed by your life circumstances, if, if let's say you have an invisible disability of struggling with depression or a physical affliction like mine, quadriplegia, or if you deal with pain, number one, just do the next thing. Do the next thing that's got to be done. Just just get up into life and out into the day. And number two, um, hang tough with Jesus. Spend time with Christ. 20 minutes a day at least. Reading his word. Talking with him. Um, becoming replenished by his spirit. And number three, look for somebody else in a situation whose life circumstances are more desperate than yours. Find that person who's more needy than you are, emotionally, spiritually, physically, and invest your life in them. Uh, you, you can never go wrong with just facing a day with that, those, three, those, those three guidelines. Number one, do the next thing. Number two, spend time with Jesus. Number three, find somebody who's hurting more than you are, who's struggling more than you are, and invest your life in them. And you'll be do you you will be honoring God. You will be you will be accruing for yourself um, rewards for eternity. You will be stretching your soul's capacity for 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 living. You, you you'll be changed. You'll be transformed because it's uh, you'll you'll be taking um, the Bible's advice to to um, to not be served, not sit around on earth to be served, but to, as Jesus said, go out and serve. Yeah, we began our conversation talking about FDR and, and that amazing man with an amazing presidency who come, overcame some pretty big challenges. Um, that notion of, of not letting what you perceive to be a limitation to stop you from making life count. His life is an example of that. Certainly your life is an example of that. I think of this story out of the Pacific Northwest of parents who literally came across with a multi-million dollar, not wrongful death suit, but a wrongful birth suit against a clinic for not properly diagnosing a child that they uh, were hoping, quote unquote, would be born uh, without any challenges and turned out to be a Downs baby. 
And as a result, they sued the clinic for not telling them. And, and I think in a story like that, if they only understood what that child could do mm. in life. Especially a child with Down syndrome. And I think all of us perhaps know uh, young people with Down syndrome. They are fundamentally the most happy uh, people you'll ever want to meet. Uh, they don't see that anything about them needs to be changed. Their lives are full and rich. But yet these parents, uh, because the lab failed to properly diagnose their unborn child as having Down syndrome, when that child was born, uh, they sued the lab for uh, millions of dollars. And this just goes to show that we in our country are, are have, bought, have truly bought into that premise that you are better off dead than disabled. That uh, an, a newborn infant is a, quote, non-person who does not have moral rights because that child is yet to develop hope, goals, dreams, uh, aspirations. So although clearly human, uh, that, that uh, newborn infant with Down syndrome is, is not a person, not a person uh, whom the law can protect. That is sad. And it's happening uh, in hospitals all over the country. Um, many more incidents of infanticide, the starving to death of infants purely based on their uh, disability. And with the new health care law, when it kicks in um, and federal oversight committees began allocating uh, how many health care dollars can be dispensed to which medical institutions, doctors uh, will, will, will say no to mothers and fathers who want a heroic treatment for their newborn infant with a disability. Our, our ethics, our morals are not keeping up with the technology, are they? Absolutely, Craig. And when cost and convenience are, are, are pressed together uh, in, a, in a medical situation, then it's usually uh, children, infants, the elderly, people who are medically fragile. These are the ones whose lives are most in jeopardy. Is the gap here, Johnny, uh, an issue of a need for greater degrees of understanding and education? Again, going back to our example of Roosevelt, after he had been diagnosed with polio, the age of 39, well into his political career, um, he could have been told then, well, forget it. It's, it's over with. So the possibility of someday becoming the governor of New York, off the table. Mm. The possibility of moving on to become the 32nd president of the United States, serving an unprecedented 12 years, four terms, that's off the table as well. How different America might be uh, of the legacy that he left, of getting us through the Second World War, creating things like uh, Social Security, um, forging in many respects the opening of the door to finally end racism in this country. Mm. Uh, All of those things that he did that could have been lost Mm. if attitudes that he had had been different to simply conclude, as you said before, well, you're better off dead than disabled. Exactly. We need to look past the disability and understand that each of us bears the imprint of a great creator God. And for that reason alone, our life is separated and sanctified. It's sacred. It's it's worth protecting. Um, uh, this argument about people being pre-persons when they are infants and have no ability to choose or they have no hopes or dream, dreams or goals, pre-persons or post-persons. That is, if you are an elderly individual who uh, might not have cognitive skills, perhaps dementia, Alzheimer's, or a non-person, such as an individual who is in a coma uh, and, and living in a coma for an extended state. This philosophy is beginning to have real impact in the way doctors make medical decisions and in the way parents make choices about their own children, such as this uh, organ couple who uh, sued over the wrongful birth of a Down syndrome infant. It is bearing a very bitter, poisonous fruit. Absolutely. 
it is it's poisonous and it's it's impacting the lives of people with disabilities not just in this country but around the world does the church need to step up to the plate to the greater degree in terms of allowing our voices to be heard in this arena of maybe under the greater heading of, of bioethics uh, I mean the notion of pre-person post-person non-person I find nowhere in scripture from Genesis to Revelation and I'm thinking the fact that we as the church having a personal relationship with the very creator of us all that we of all have the greatest degree of responsibility to speak out against all of this when we see this kind of an injustice or when we see the, the, the sort of redefining of what life really is. Exactly. And the church, the, the, this is the arena where the church belongs. Um, Christians sitting on ethics committees in hospitals, uh, Christians serving as ombudsmen in nursing facilities where plugs are too uh, callously and, and carelessly pulled, uh, Christians getting equipped and trained uh, to understand that this discussion that we're having is in the theoretical realm of bioethical discussions and medical institutions, no. Um, the real decisions are being made right now in nursing facilities and neonatal units in, uh, in nursing homes where Christians can step in and say, no, we will not let this happen. I will advocate for this individual. There are resources. The church does care. We will not abandon this individual, this infant, this elderly person, this person with a disability. And these discussions that are taking place are not taking place in a vacuum, are they? I mean, they're, they're having a real impact on real people in real lives that are literally put in the balance. And I think Christians really want to step into that battle. Most of us just don't know how. We're not equipped. We're ill-trained. We don't understand the language. Uh, we don't have the resources. And I, that's why I'm so excited to be here in the Bay Area, Craig, with our Johnny and Friends uh, Bay Area office, because we stand ready to help train churches, to equip them, to help Christians understand what a biblical worldview on disability is. Not a postmodern view, not a modernist view, but a true biblical worldview on disability and, and the difference that makes in the lives of families. And where ultimately, as we understand from Scripture, where we are weak, he is strong, where our ability ends, his begins. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because that's really the the uh, the whole foundational uh, thought. It's, it's, it's the philosophical undergirding for a, a healthy perspective on disability, understanding that when we are weak, he is strong. And so we boast in our affliction. We delight in our infirmity, as the Bible says. We glory in the limitation because then we know Christ Christ's power rests on us. And and that biblical truth is true for every special needs family, every infant, every child with a disability, every elderly individual. Um, we just got to get out there and wrap flesh and blood around it as we embrace these people and their families into our fellowships. Some insights on exactly how to do that as our conversation continues. With us today in studio, Johnny Erickson Tata from Johnny and Friends. Information again on her work and ministry online at johnnyandfriends.org. That's johnnyandfriends.org. How do we get down to putting real flesh and bones on it and really making a significant difference? We'll talk about that next as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
And welcome back to the program. Again, let me share with you the website if you'd like to get more information about the ministry of Johnny and Friends and particularly what they're doing here in the San Francisco Bay Area online at johnnyandfriends.org. That's johnnyandfriends.org. And I'll mention for some folks, it's J-O-N-I, johnnyandfriends.org. Johnny Erickson Tata with us today in studio, a very special visit and getting a chance to get caught up on a number of things and also kind of a reality check, I think, for a lot of us in the church, Johnny, as we were talking just before the break, this whole bioethics question or the greater personhood question coming about, you mentioned to me off the air as I think demonstrative of just how far out of hand some of this has gotten, that we are valuing life, personhood, less. And then you mentioned about some attempts to try and now attribute the value of the human life to animals. To animals, exactly. In fact, uh, uh, during the break, you and I were discussing this, Craig, and there are efforts uh, uh, among philosophers and uh, animal welfare experts and, uh, and some theologians even to uh, ascribe to dolphins uh, non-human personhood status. It's just crazy. <laughs> People hear that. They're no. slapping the side of the radio saying, wait a minute, did Johnny just say non-human persons? But that, in fact, is what they're trying to do. I guess that's the new definition. You know, you, you can make anything sound plausible. You can make anything sound pleasant and swallowable and palatable if you give it a fancy enough mm-hmm. label. Mm-hmm. And uh, Non-human persons, uh, dolphins, uh, uh, they're, they're looking for that kind of status. Now, it's just crazy because it, it showcases to us that, that, um, that the eggs of bald eagles have more uh, protected rights than do the fertilized eggs of women. Uh, unborn children, and uh, th- th- we, we, I think we all need to understand that this is not an arena just for um, the the upper echelons of of ethical discussions. Again, this this affects our worldview. This this influences the way we um, the way we make decisions about our own uh, elderly parents who are going into nursing homes, or um, whether or not we want to abort this child that's been we've been told has a chromosomal defect. Uh, it influences our decisions. This pervasive, I think it's a very sneaky uh, way of uh, influencing our thinking. Um, and, and it is. It's influencing our thinking and it's um, resulting in life and death decisions that impact people with disabilities. And yet at the same token, here are the human persons who perhaps because they're facing certain disabilities and physical challenges are oftentimes being ignored Set aside. Or labeled as non-persons. Labeled as non-persons. Let's talk about that particular, we mentioned before the break, about the responsibility of the church to be on the front line of this entire issue. There are congregations here in the San Francisco Bay Area, as a demonstrative of any region of the country, that could significantly increase the breadth and depth of their ministry if they started to think about what can we do to make what we do as a church, as a body of believers, more accessible to the growing needs of this community. Absolutely. Uh, We mentioned, I think, in the last break about just sitting on an ethics committee, just serving as an ombudsman in uh, nursing homes. Um, Or when you're at the hair salon, when you're at Starbucks and you hear discussions start, you hear people begin talking about uh, these issues, chime in, chip in, share your point of view. Um, It's it's not a time for the church to be silent. It's a time for the church to be vocal, to be upfront, to step up to the plate and 
articulate a biblical worldview on what it means to be a person, um, what it means to be a human being created in the image of God, and how that view should influence the everyday decisions we make in our families. There's a lot that your ministry is doing uh, to not only help set us on the right track in terms of understanding the, the ethical arguments and how we need to present them, but then, too, educational service available through Johnny and Friends that can help a local church say, what can we do to kind of tear down the walls and open up our ministry to make it more accessible to meeting the local needs of folks that, you know what, maybe would love to be at church every Sunday, but my church doesn't have a wheelchair ramp or something of this sort, so that we can do more to really be more effective at ministering to the needs of the disabled community. And, and it can be done in such practical ways through a church, and that's why I'm so grateful that, uh, that our Johnny and Friends Bay Area office is working hard with local churches to train and equip them on creative ways, solutions, uh, programs to embrace these families, uh, whether it's providing respite care, whether it's providing a retreat for these moms and dads who are, who are overburdened and stressed out and worn out and overwhelmed to a family retreat down in Santa Cruz. We've got all kinds of programs and and educational opportunities available for local churches here in the Bay Area. Mark Williams, who is the Bay Area director with Johnny and Friends, uh, joins us now in studio. And and Mark, delighted to see that in some respects, this ministry is is strengthening the tent stakes uh, to meet the growing needs of the disabled community here in the San Francisco Bay Area. So much so that you were mentioning to me that family camp, a lot of folks are familiar with down in Mission Springs, that that is already full for the year. And part of the vision here is to, again, strengthening those uh, tent stakes to open up to have additional family camps. Uh, That's correct, Craig. Family camps sold out in two weeks this year. Uh, Camp consists of about 250 people each, so that's 500 people in two weeks signed up for our camp. And we're out. We need another camp right now. And that's why Johnny's up here to help us in the Bay Area. We're going on a campaign to raise the funds to have another camp at Mission Springs, not just one in the next year, two. The role that you play with the Bay Area office, um, kind of give us a, a look as to the resources available through the ministry, both globally at the corporate offices as well as locally, to help equip the local church to do a better job at reaching this community. Having Johnny's office down at Agrero Hills behind us is like having a Christian university of information for us on disability. We have all these tools at our fingertips to bring to the churches. We want to be the head foot washers of the churches. There's no way we could hit the critical mass of the Bay Area. We're only four people in our office of Johnny and Friends, and this is the way we're going to go at it, by teaching and training all the churches to bring these people across the threshold. Because, Craig, when they're rejected at their church at the threshold, they feel like they're rejected by God himself. And that's a key point, isn't it, Johnny, to understand that we're, we're really missing a huge opportunity here. Uh, if we don't take the time to get educated and to understand the simple things that can be done. And, and I guess that's the other message here, too. A lot of folks say, oh, my goodness, this is going to be too involved and complex. How can we possibly take on the additional burden of now ministering or meeting the spiritual needs of disabled members of our local community? But, in fact, it's a lot easier than most people perceive. It really is. It's it's just extending that hand of welcome to that single mother who's bringing a child with autism into the congregation, uh, a mother who has been uh, rejected by other churches saying, we have no programs for your son. You need to go somewhere else where a church is better equipped. Well, we want to equip that church who uh, might 
feel strongly about rejecting that mom with that little boy. Um, autism is on the rise. Uh, one in every 109 births now uh, are diagnosed with a, with autism. And that is incredibly skyrocketing statistic. And, and our Sunday schools and our Christian ed directors and our churches need to know how to embrace these children. What do you do in a Sunday school classroom when a boy with autism has a meltdown or goes ballistic? Uh, how, how do you how do you adjust for that? How do you uh, help the other children understand the, the difference that this child has and uh, and his disability? And and we're equipped at the Bay Area to help address these questions to provide training for Christian ed directors, pastors, Sunday school teachers, so that um, children with autism especially can be embraced in a church. That's just one disability, but it's one of the most common disabilities now. Almost every cul-de-sac in America has a family somehow impacted with autism. If you've just joined our conversation today, a visit in studio with Johnny Erickson Tata, of course, from Johnny and Friends, and also Mark Williams with us, Bay Area Director of the Bay Area Office of Johnny and Friends. We'll take a brief time out and come back to more of our conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Welcome back to the conversation. Andy Branner with me tonight. Guest expert on teens, author of a new book called An Expose on Teen Sex and Dating, What's Really Going On and How to Talk About It. You know, one of the other big uh, shockers here, I think, for a lot of parents is the amount of alcohol and drug abuse going on. Uh, There was a Department of Health and Human Services substance abuse report that came out that found that order over a quarter of teens, 25%, have engaged in uh, alcohol abuse under the age of 21, and 17% have gotten engaged in so-called binge drinking. There are folks listening to this program right now, Andy, who have never binged drank in their life, let alone doing it before the age of 18. Yeah, yeah. The uh, those are the old those are the old teenage adages, right? If we can only get them to stop drinking and stop smoking weed and stop having sex, then then everything will be fine. But but what we found is that those are just merely a veneer. All those issues, those classic teenage issues, are just uh, those are the, the surface issues of something deeper going on. And what we find those things to be true out here, we've got a little place called Kivu out in Colorado. We have over a thousand students every summer that come out here to do adventures in Colorado and. And, and during that time, we get a chance to really live life with students. And so what we find is that most students that are, that are just trying to make their journey through high school are struggling with significance. And, and it might not just be a teen issue. It could be, a, I mean, it's probably just all of us, right? We all want to feel valuable. We all want to feel significant. We all want to feel like we've got somebody that will listen to us. And, and, and the more that I find kids that are engaged in activities, as you mentioned, the more I find somebody crying out going, who in this world is going to value me? Mm. Who's going to be with me? And I, and I would say, and I say this every time I get in front of an audience, the number one issue in the teenage world today is not drinking, it's not sex, it's not drugs. The number one issue is loneliness. They're walking through life and they just feel all alone. You know, and the amazing thing to that message is that's kind of the description of the the human condition overall, isn't it? That's it. Yeah, that's it. And I think I find the more that I can, when I bend down to look a student in the eye, and I and I give them the value that they deserve as being human, all of a sudden their eyes light up and they think, oh, "Wow, somebody, somebody cares for me." And if they can do that at home, if a mom and a dad can do the parenting thing in a way that they really invest time in the things that teenagers like to do, and they 
they really focus on valuing their students. Sure, there's disciplinary things. Surely there's correction things. Surely there are issues where we have to get in and mentor and coach. But when I place value in my teenager, he longs to be with me. He wants to be with people that find him valuable. And it goes back to the old age-old adage that oftentimes the best thing that you can do to sort of inoculate your kids against all that the world has to offer out there is just to spend some time with them. And if you use the excuse, oh, but I'm putting in 60-hour work weeks and earn enough money so we can take the big vacations and live in the bigger house, I'm doing it all for my kids. In the end, you're going to find out that uh, uh, the opposite effect of what you were hoping for it comes to fruition. That's it. And I tell kids, I tell parents a lot, you know, when my kids got to the age where they could they could do Legos and they started stacking Legos, uh, they would sit in the living room for hours just stacking these things and making these different concoctions of Lego buildings and stuff. And I got to tell you, Craig, I hate Legos. I just don't think that way. I have no patience. I don't, I don't, I can't put the six block with the four block with the two block. But it was the times that I sat in the living room and said, you know what? Even though I don't like doing this, I know you love it. And to, to spend time with you, I'm going to do the thing that you like to do. Those were the relationships where, where relationships started being made. That's when they started seeing, hey, Dad really cares about us because he wants to spend time doing what we want to do. So I encourage parents all, all the time. You know, if you can find that thing, if it's video games, don't, don't just turn the, the Xbox off. Maybe sit down with your kid and say, hey, teach me how to do this. I'd love to do this with you. And get into their world. And once you get into their world... Then these conversations about drinking and drugs and sex and relationships at school and academics and all the different things that they're involved in start just bubbling forth without you even really having to ask any real hard questions. You're not suggesting to try to be a peer or a friend. I mean, you can be a friend to your kids, but, you know, your, your kids will have plenty of friends in their lifetime. They're only going to have one mother and one father. Sure, sure, yeah. I think the friendship thing is, is, is a different term maybe than I want to invest my time where you find time. And, and I'm going to show value to you the way that you need to feel valued. And, and if we can do that, man, it's, I'm telling you, it changes the way parents and teenagers interact together. Let's grab a couple of calls here. We're going to go to Lori in San Jose. Lori, come on in with your comment or question for my guest tonight, Andy Brenner. Hi. Um, I um, have taught high school and different age group students, and um, I found that, uh, you know, sex is a big problem as far as you know student student interactions becoming more casual but does your book address um uh you know faculty uh, becoming involved in promoting sexuality like uh what governor brown did uh and the legislature did as far as um sp I think it's SB forty eight. Forty eight, yeah, and you know, and 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 even the bigger equation there, Lori, is the fact that we've seen so much of almost substitute parenting going on in the classroom. And, and some of it, I think, to be fair, Andy, a few parents kind of fell on their swords, didn't do their job, and then some, I think, well-meaning but over-enthusiastic folks at the the educational level said, well, look, if the parents are not going to teach their kids right from wrong and, and uh, sex education, we'll take care of that for them. The problem is, you know, fast forward 40 years after so-called sex education made its way into the classroom, now all of a sudden it's moved from, you know, just good 
good health information to suddenly uh, promoting an agenda. Andy? Right. So the book, to, to speak to your question directly, Lori, the book does not address the public school's responsibility or not responsibility. So I'll speak just off the cuff in, in, in the research that I found. It speaks more to what Craig was talking about. We see administrators all over the country who are standing up saying we need sex education in the classroom, and we find parents that are trying to opt out of those things in, in a way that they say, hey, it's our responsibility, we're going to teach them. Well, let me just give you a little uh, a little story. We had a guy that was sending his kid out to our place here in Colorado, and he said, are you guys going to teach sexuality out there? And I said, well, yeah, we have a whole course on dating and sexuality as it relates to the Christian worldview, and what, what, is, it, what is God's intention for us in developing a relationship? Well, the man was well-intentioned on the other end of the phone, and he said, he said, well, I'd like my daughter to opt out of that class. And I said, well, that's great, because we don't want to do anything that offends parents. We want to make sure we're locking arms with parents. We want to do what you want to do. I said, could you tell me a little bit, like, why? Why don't you want her in that class? And he said, well, we're going we're gonna to teach her those things at home, and we just want to reserve that conversation. To which I responded, incredible. That's incredible. That's a great idea. Thanks for being good parents. And then I said, if you don't mind, might I ask, how old is your daughter when she's coming out here? I'd just like to know, you know, where she's going to fit in, where she's going to play, how we can identify her. He said, well, she's 15 years old. <laughs> to that I said, brother, I don't mean to step on your toes, but that ship has already sailed. Yeah, you're, 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 you're going to have the conversation? Yeah, well, you should have been thinking about that probably 15, probably, you know, eight years ago. Our research shows that the average first sexual experience happens at 12 years old. Yep. There you go. And that, that is that is the stark reality that I think a lot of parents need to deal with. You know, even as we think about how we were parented, Andy, and wish to apply some of those lessons to how we in turn become parents and parent our own kids, we've got to realize this clock is moving faster than any of us realize. It's it's fast, and that, that statistic of 12 years old means that 50% of them parents are younger than 12. And so we've got to, if we're going to stand up and take the, the mantle of teaching our kids about sexuality, then we've got to start those conversations as awkward as they might seem, earlier and earlier. Some good insights. If they want to get copies of the book, Andy, it's available, I would imagine, through your website as well as Amazon.com. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Amazon.com, uh, AndyBrainer.com is my website, or you can just flip over to NavPress.com, uh, and you can go down to the teenage section, and it's highlighted there. All right. An expose on teen sex and dating, what's really going on, and how to talk about it. Information again on Andy's website at AndyBrainer, A-N-D-Y-B-R-A-N-E-R.com. Andy, thanks for the time and the insight. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.